Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Simply Safe. Save 20% on your Simply Safe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash mission log to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's S I M P L I S A F E dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 415. Take me out to the hollow suite. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every single episode from Star Trek to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, take me out to the Holosuite, the one where Cisco is challenged to a game of baseball by an old Vulcan rival. Will the Niners stand tall as a league of their own, or will they just strike out? And we'll be back with John and Trivia in a moment, but here are a few different ways that you can send us a few signals from the dugout. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now... Uh, the, uh, Norm, what, what are you doing? What's the, the arm slapping, you're touching your forehead? I don't... What, what are you doing? Well, I, I'm signaling you. I'm signaling you to start this week's trivia. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, baseball signals. Okay, got it. Got it. Here we go. Trivia. Or take me out to the holosuite. This episode was written by Ronald D. Moore, and this is a fun little bit of trivia because Ron gets all the credit, but it's so Ira Stephen Bear's story. Now, he had produced a similarly themed episode for fame when he was on that show, The Dancers Are the Underdogs in a Baseball Game, and that was, in effect, a tribute to similar stories that had been done before. Ira felt like he was just too close to the story. So he recruited Ron to actually create it, but let's not kid ourselves, Ira's got his fingerprints all over this one. 
It was directed by Chip Chalmers, and there's a familiar name, but one we haven't seen too terribly much on DS9. He was the first assistant director for a lot of Next Gen, but he ended up directing four episodes on that series, and he only has one other DS9 directing credit, and that was with The Magnificent Ferengi that we covered last season. Locations. Let's talk about location shooting because you know that I love it. Here, the DS9 producers really locked out and got the use of the Page Baseball Stadium at Loyola Marymount University in Playa Vista, California. The shoot actually scheduled a whole extra day because they knew there would be so many setups. And they also called for doubles of essentially every cast member because there were so many shots, which included most of them somewhere in the camera's view, like in the background and the outfield and whatever. And and funny also, when you think about how many days they needed, how many setups, how smart it was to not have people in the grandstand for the majority of the game, since that would have been a very expensive shoot for the extras alone. And let's see, in the long history of DS9 location shoots not cooperating, well, the weather cooperated here for once. It was just a nice, cool, pleasant time for all the days they were out there. And it it seems like everybody in our regular cast was really up for the challenge. Now, Max Gradenchik, followed by Avery and Ciroc, uh, had been very good at playing baseball. In fact, Max himself had played semi-pro while in high school, before switching his full dedication to acting. Now, the one with the least experience was Nana Visitor, but she got lucky and hit the ball on her first take, much to the delight of the cast and crew. Let's talk about our guest stars. We have all our DS9 regulars here. There's even the return of Penny Johnson as Cassidy Yates and Chase Masterson as Lita. And they're all joined by a crew full of Vulcans. The majority of them were there for their baseball skills. On the DS9 set already, frequently as a background actor, was an actor named Joey Banks. His father just happened to be Chicago Cubs legend Ernie Banks, so Joey knew a thing or two about the game. He assembled those actors who would be Vulcans, and he also coached the DS9 team. Standing out from the Vulcans, though, is the captain of the USS Tecumbra, a Nebula-class ship for all of you playing the home game. That would be Solok, played by Gregory Wagrowski. Born in Poland, Gregory went to school in Long Beach, California, and started his on-screen career in the 80s with guest spots on shows like Hill Street Blues, Amazing Stories, and even a turn on T.J. Hooker. This episode is one of two Star Trek appearances. We will see him again on an episode of Enterprise in a different role. In addition to all the work in TV and film, Gregory has had quite a career in live theater as an actor, director, and among those many credits, uh, he has worked with Los Angeles Theater Center and was artistic director of Colorado Actors Theater. I have an alternate title suggestion too. Hear me out on this one. Go, Durham. Prologue. The all-Vulcan crewed USS Tecumbra, under the leadership of the all-too-Vulcan Captain Solok, docks at Deep Space Nine for repairs after a prolonged six-month service fighting the Dominion. Captain Solok himself pays Captain Sisko a visit in his ready room, 
to discuss the maintenance schedule for supplies and repairs and can't help but stir up rival tendencies in Captain Sisko. After a series of veiled insults and jockeying for the verbal upper hand, Solok is outwardly displeased with Sisko's inefficient plans to get the Tecumbra fit and ready for duty, which would take no less than a week. Unable to take the Tecumbra to another station for repairs, he cannot help but tempt Captain Sisko to help pass the time with a holodeck program that he knows Sisko can't refuse. After leaving their encounter in the captain's ready room, Sisko announces to all that he's accepted Solok's challenge on his crew's behalf, a challenge of teamwork, courage, and sacrifice, a challenge in the form of a baseball game. Act 1. Upon accepting Sisko's challenge to play the Vulcans in baseball, the crew embarks on their mission with the utmost enthusiasm and venturing into a crash course on learning all of the intricacies of Sisko's most beloved game. They have two weeks to prepare for this mission, and there are hundreds of centuries of knowledge that they have to digest in the meantime. Even Lita and Rom express a desire to join the team and play, because Rom thinks it's a good way for he and Nog to spend some time together, like Jake and Benjamin do, through baseball. Quark, ever the pessimist, tries to discourage Rom from embarrassing himself, only to have a sudden change of heart to try out for the team as well. As the motley crew of Cisco's Niners, Worf, Kira, Ezri, Bashir, O'Brien, Quark, and Nog, along with Rom and Lita, take the field for their first day of practice, it seems that their work is cut out for them, as none of them, save Jake, have any idea of how the game works let alone possessing the ability to come together as a well-oiled baseball machine to take down the Vulcans. Throwing and catching is foreign to many of them, as Sisko observes these basic deficiencies in his players, despite his passion for them to be better. For him, it's more than just a game. For him, he has to beat Captain Solok. Act 2. If learning the basics of baseball isn't hard enough... The Niners are spending a great deal of time in Bashir's infirmary, as many of them are suffering from post-practice injuries, such as Quark taking a bat to the back of his head from a very distraught and apologetic Rom, to Ezri feeling embarrassed that she should have better command of her body with Emini's memories there to guide her from a previous lifetime as an Olympic-level gymnast. However, the team suffers their first dropout as the Chief's recurring shoulder injury forces Dr. Bashir to pull him off the team, but still can participate as their backup coach. Sisko, meanwhile, convinces Odo to be the game's umpire, pleading with him that his particular sense of impartial law and order would better suit the spirit of the game instead of a holographic umpire. All Sisko needs to do now is find a replacement for Chief O'Brien. And after pulling some strings and sidelining Cassidy's next few cargo runs, he meets her in the docking bay, showering her with flowers and compliments, and asks her, How's your throwing arm holding up? Later, during another grueling practice session, Sisko becomes fed up with Rom's inability to even grasp the basic concepts of catching and batting that he takes out his frustration at the already beleaguered Rom and kicks him off the team in front of all his fellow Niners. Act 3. As Rom sulks and quarks, Lita, Nog, and Quark try to cheer him up but are determined to quit the team if Sisko doesn't take Rom back. And not just them, as Julian, Miles, and Kira approach Rom, admitting that what the captain did to Rom was uncalled for and unfair, and they are willing to quit as well if Sisko doesn't put Rom back in the rotation. But Rom insists he's willing to watch from the stands and cheer his team on to victory. 
The team presses on and practices hard. Cisco drills them in the wardroom with tactical scenarios. Cassidy gives Julian batting pointers in the infirmary. Even Quark has his bartenders hurl drinkware at him so he can firm up his catching reflexes. Odo is hard at work at practicing his umpire moves as Kira can't help but watch from outside his office, trying to hold back smiling. Back in Cisco's quarters, he is elbow deep in Cassidy's massage as she tries to literally and figuratively work out Benjamin's tension. Pressing Benjamin on the matter, Cassidy forces him to admit that there is more than just a game at stake with Captain Solok. He admits that their rivalry goes all the way back to an altercation that he had with Solok when they attended the academy together. In the local bar called the Launching Pad, Solok, who lorded Vulcan superiority over human emotionalism, struck a nerve in Sisko, who was deep in his cups. Sisko challenged him to a wrestling match and lost spectacularly. Adding insult to injury, Sisko became the focus on a myriad of papers that Solok authored, citing this very encounter that humans are far too emotionally driven, and how Vulcan stoicism and logic will always be superior to that kind of behavior. And now, Sisko is taking it personally because Solak is using Sisko's favorite pastime, his game, as yet another example to prove this self-proclaimed Vulcan superiority. This is why Sisko is pushing his team so hard, and as much as Cassidy wants him to admit this to his crew, he can't rise above this petty rivalry that is all but consuming him and the game he loves. Cut to Cassidy sitting down with the Niners and explaining all of this to them, which rekindles their spirit for the game and gives them a reason to give it their all, not just to beat the Vulcans, but to defend the honor of their coach, their captain, as they all place their hands on each other's cheering Niners as their rallying cry. Act 4. It's a beautiful day in the Hollis Suite as the Niners and Logicians take the field after a stirring salute scored by the Federation anthem. However, from the very start, Sisko is already on the defensive as he requests that Solak remove the holographic spectators because his team has never played in front of a crowd. Soon after Odo dusts off his home plate and declares the teams to play ball, the Vulcans draw first blood as Jake's first pitch is crushed by the Vulcans' batter, setting the tone for the opening salvo. As the Vulcans' first at-bat comes to a close, the Niners have given up four runs to the Logicians, and the mood in the Niners' dugout is somber, no matter how hard Sisko tries to bolster their spirits. As the innings continue, the Logicians mount a sizable lead as the Niners helplessly watch their dream of defeating the Vulcans drift further and further out of reach. However, Colonel Kira managed to chop one through the Vulcans' infield defense and secure a second base as Worf takes a stand in the batter's box. After a few errant balls amidst the strikes, the Vulcan pitcher faces down Worf at full count, and, after taking a moment to pause and ready himself for the final pitch, the Vulcan strikes Worf out, enraging Sisko, causing him to challenge Odo's call. In the heat of the moment, Sisko thrusts a finger into Odo's chest, and Odo, being the thorough rule stickler that Sisko begged him to be, ejects Sisko from the game, citing chapter and verse of the rulebook, specifically about touching the umpire, a rule to which he tells Sisko to look up, sitting in the stands. Act 5. As a furious coach Sisko leaves the dugout, Julian reminds Miles that he is now the coach, and O'Brien rallies the team for one last inning. The Vulcans continue to press their already sizable lead as one of their runners strides across home plate. Or does he? 
Odo, looking as impartial as possible, does hint to Nog that there is something amiss. From the dugout, the chief screams at Nog that the Vulcan runner didn't touch home plate. In a fit of confusion, Nog runs to the logician's dugout to tap everyone out as the Vulcan runner sprints past him, only to be thrown out by Nog to Jake at the plate, as the Niners and Rom erupt in a raucous cheer, which catches Cisco's eye. He approaches Rom in the bleachers, and shortly after, has a quick moment with the chief to discuss a secret plan. As Jake gets ready for his at-bat, O'Brien pulls him aside and signals to Odo that they have a substitution. It's Nog, who's suited up and ready to play ball. Cisco even has the crowd resummoned to cheer him on as the announcer blares his name across the sound system. After a series of mishaps, Nog is clearly out of his depth, but the chief signals him to bunt. And in a moment of chaos and confusion, the Vulcan pitcher accidentally hits Rom's bat, forcing the bunt, which allows Nog to score. The Niners win! Well, they win the moral victory, to be sure. Shouldering Rom and parading him around the field as the hero of the day, Captain Solok protests via touching Odo's shoulder, which, as regulations demand, has Solok ejected from the game. Later in Quark's very pleased and apologetic Cisco admits to Rom that he was wrong in throwing him off the team. It seems that Cisco has rediscovered why this game means so much to him in a way that Solak will never understand. Solak confronts Cisco in the bar and protests the celebration as a manufactured triumph, to which Cisco buys a round of drinks on the house to toast said manufactured triumph. And as the Niners jeer Solak straight out of the bar, Kira presents Cisco with a brand new baseball, one signed by all the Niners and a perfect reminder of how they all came together to overcome the odds as a team. The end. Well, I'm excited to talk about this episode, but I can't help bring up something that we've done here on Mission Log from time to time, and that's mm-hmm. to play, John, the alternate title game. And I oh, think that... Oh, yeah, I did, the alternate I title the memo. game, right? I, I'm so excited about this. Okay, yeah, yeah. A thrilling, thrilling uh, way to kick off this segment. Uh, well, I think got? that... I think that this episode kind of lends itself to a couple of fun alternate titles like, say, I don't know, why not the Bad News Bajorans? Perfect. Perfect. So funny. I I actually had Bad News Bears in my mind as I was watching this. So, yes, I love it. How about this one, though? I'm going to see what you think about this. Mm -hmm. A Star League of their own. (laughs) Nice. Very good. Going with the theme of stars. How about Starfield of Dreams? Ooh. Oh, I like right. that one a lot. If yeah. you program the holodeck, they will come. They will, Yes, you know? good. Good call. Okay, good. <laughs> but I think the one that they really missed and something that is near and dear to my heart being a child of the 80s, what about Bajor League? <laughs> See, that is perfect. And it's perfect if you pronounce it like that. If you have a guest right. star on who says something like Bajor, right. then you would lose that, that title pun. But that, my friend, is perfect. I love it. I, I'm, I'm gonna, a fan of that. Yeah, yeah. I think we should start a uh, an online petition to change this to Bajor League. I got you. Yeah, I feel perfect. that. Yeah. <laughs> so right off the bat, ooh, no pun intended, though recognized. Uh, mm. I just have to say, hello, Solak. Um, ooh, he I garners really, the hello. Huh? He does. He does. There, there has rarely been a colder, cold opening than that scene. Just so you feel that t- it, w- it was almost Tarantino-esque where you're just ratcheting up the tension with every line 
that has very little to do with what's actually happening on screen. I mean, look, first of all, two Christopher Pike medals, that the setup is gold in this episode. Love it. Yeah. And, and I like how uh, Avery is very economical in his acting style. He just colors that scene perfectly because you know, even more so than Kai Wen, you know that Solok <laughs> is someone he just doesn't want to deal with yes. ever. L- looking down at the pad, like not making eye contact at the end of that scene. That just, yeah, uh, perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and look, you know, and I know, and our listeners know that we have to call out some favorite lines here. Let's just do it right up front. We will destroy them. And death, <laughs> death to the opposition. Again, <laughs> Worf, Worf gets the one-liners, and they're so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. perfect. Um, and I, I will admit that I am just as confused by the rules of baseball as everyone else on DS9. It would take me two weeks at least to wrap my head around that. So I appreciate the montage of them trying to get it right. Um, I'm still confused. Um, and, and please, nobody try to explain it to me because I'm, I'm past it. <laughs> all you need to know, John, is Fancy Dan. That's all you need to know. That is all I will remember from this. Yes, yeah. I will take that away from this. Mm-hmm. So speaking of Bashir and the Fancy Dan reference, okay, so Mm -hmm. I get that they have to create a hero out of Rom at the end of this episode, but Mm -hmm. there is no way, no conceivable way that a genetically modified superhuman like Bashir is, we all saw him like just willingly do bullseye on the darts board, will ever not hit a baseball, ever. That's very true. It, It really is. I mean, unless somehow... Like, uh, for all of his genetically modified advantages and perfection, there's just something about holding a baseball bat that isn't quite right. Which then, they open themselves up to the the possibility here of somebody on that team saying, I'm laughing at the superiority. (laughs) But uh, but we never got it, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Now, there is something a little bit gruesome, I think, about the idea of practicing until you're in pain and then using that quick medical fix just to get back out there, like pushing themselves to the edge. And look, and I know we do this anyway in real life in pro sports and some amateur sports, too. But it's even weirder when you see Dr. Bashir can just sort of wave the magic healing wand and like, oh, yeah, we had to stitch up some muscles here and pain there and fix that. Okay, get back out there. You know, it's like, like, how about uh, don't play to the point of pain? You know, they're they're amateurs. I I guess that begs the question, though, that Mm -hmm. if he can do all that, then what is the deal with the chief's shoulder? Why isn't that... A th- you know, like, why hasn't that been repaired yet? Well, right, right. I mean, it, clearly he keeps going on the rafting trips in the hollow suite and he just keeps hurting himself more and more. But yeah, it just seems like that would be a thing that over time would and could get better. But yeah, uh, I, I don't get it. They have pills that can rebuild kidneys. Rebuild a kidney. Come on. Exactly. That was 100 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And now, interesting choice here, the practice jerseys, uh, I thought, uh, uh, very strange that everyone has a different color combination. And did you notice that some of the name tags are on the left and some are on the right? There wasn't mm-hmm. like, a, yeah, I, I just, I, I guess their personalities coming out in the design. I, I don't really I, know. Hmm, yeah. I don't know. Excited to see the replicator can make gum. Uh, and that's pretty cool because, of course, it can. And custom flavors. I love that idea, too. But scotch? I, I don't know that I would necessarily chew gum that tasted like scotch. And again, why isn't Chief O'Brien programming it to taste like uh, Redbreast or Jameson or or anything Irish? Irish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, at least it wasn't, you know, blueberry, you know, a blueberry surprise. So, you know, like a la Willy Wonka. Right. We haven't perfected that yet. Yeah. Still. I'll tell you what, my favorite scene in this episode, and I know it's such a small scene, but it made me smile so Mm -hmm. wide. It's when Odo was doing his moves, like, you know, practicing his outs and safes and, you know, his thumb. It was just so endearing because he loves he loves it when when they include him in things yeah and he's gonna do his absolute you know level best to do the right thing by that particular participation right, right? yeah so good uh, yeah. And, and that was another one of those like subtle comedy moments that they didn't overplay it didn't overstay yeah. its welcome you you never need to see him turn to the front or get embarrassed or whatever it just just let it play let her walk by it was nice, yeah. Exactly. I, I do like the introduction here of the idea of the off-campus bar at Starfleet, the launching pad. We've had some good bars in Star Trek history, and I wish that we could see this one. So just going to throw it out there. Maybe Star Trek Online. Maybe somebody can do a schematic of it. I, I like the idea. Wish we had seen it. So I really liked the scene where where Cisco is kind of cathartically admitting to Cassidy, you know, his background, his past rivalry with mm. Solok, and he starts thumping his chest with a baseball bat, like, you know, this is my game, you know, my yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. It was real. It was yeah. a very real moment. Yes, uh, that was good stuff. Oh, gosh. And I, <laughs> so what, what a great cut. You know, I want you to promise me. You won't tell anybody. Cut to Cassidy Yates. He told me to promise. Right. <laughs> so you'll buy this under your hats. <laughs> I mean, great, great little moment there. And speaking of hats, I love those oversized hats to fit on those Ferengi heads. That was just a fun little detail there. Because, of course, of course you have to do that. Also want to point out the music in this episode is great. Uh, A real change of pace from what we normally get, thematically appropriate. And I love the anthem before the game, the the, uh, Federation anthem. So cool. All of it done by David Bell, longtime Star Trek composer, and, and really exploring a different style here from his usual Trek style. So something that the listeners may not know, one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, me being, um, well, me growing up close to Cleveland, mm. Major League from 1989, uh, 10 years prior to this episode, is uh-huh. one of my favorite movies. And there's a sequence at the end of this episode where Rom bunts the ball because everyone thinks that he may actually swing and hit something decent. He yeah. bunts the ball, allowing Nog to run home. Yeah. That's exactly how the Indians won their pennant playoff uh, position in Major League. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's nice. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of details where uh, Ira went to the extent and passed it along to Ron. And in their research, they, they figured like, okay, here's an actual thing that happened in baseball history. So we'll plug that into the script, um, yeah. but, but also make it dramatic and, and uplifting. And I, I just have to say the the Wharf cisco Odo argument is... <laughs> Awesome. It is awesome. I just, some of those like reverse the call. What were you doing? Regenerating? <laughs> that was awesome. Every time I watched that sequence, I cracked up. I laughed out loud. You know, it's, it's obvious that the number 13 is associated with uh, 
the unlucky number 13. You know, it's just a tradition, right? So, of course, who is to wear that number on their jersey but Rom? Of course, and perfectly so. And we have to give a shout-out to Magic Number 47. That was on Cassidy's uniform. That was her number. And um, and just and while we're talking about uniforms and details, love the uniforms for the logicians. I love the Itic. I love the Vulcan script on those. So nice. Yeah, and I really like uh, at the end when they give him the baseball, when they give Captain Sisko the baseball, because they have the signatures on it. But if you look really closely, as he twirls the ball, you'll see like a hand-drawn version of the Starfleet Delta on the baseball yes, in that, that same blue ink. And that prop, where is that? That's what I want to know. Remind me never to get into a wrestling match with a Vulcan or with anyone, really. It's bad for my diodes. We will get right back to Take Me Out of the Hollow Suite in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. So here, uh, John, here's a question for you, and here's a question for the audience. How did you choose which Internet service provider to use? Because the reality is, and the sad thing is, is that most of us have actually very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions in which they serve. And then they use this, quote-unquote, monopoly power to take advantage of customers, such as data caps and streaming throttles, and the list goes on and on. But, you know, worst of all, many of these ISPs log your internet activity and then sell this data to other big tech companies or advertisers and to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. Ah, yes. I'm glad that you pointed out how good and how important ExpressVPN is uh, because you're right. You know, we don't have a lot of choice in uh, what we sign up to when we sign up with our local ISP. So that raises a good question, Norman. What is ExpressVPN? Well, simply put, it is an app, just a tiny, simple little app with a button on it that says it's on or off. You put it on your computer or your smartphone or tablet, whatever device, and it encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server. So guess what? That ISP that you signed your life away to, they cannot see any of your activity. So just think about how much of your life is on the internet right now. Sadly, every single site that you visit, uh, every video you watch, every message you send, everything gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who then can sell that information for profit. Yes, it, you, you are the product at that point. And that's the reason that Norman and I heartily and sincerely recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP or any other snooping eyes. You just download the app, you tap one button on your device, and you are protected. That's it. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing down your connection. And that is critical. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN we trust to keep ourselves private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash mission log right now 
to learn more. When Simply Safe Home Security's founders, Chad and Eleanor Lawrence, designed their first security system in their kitchen, I, I love this. They did it for a very personal reason. They had friends who had just had their home broken into, and they were struggling to find a security system that was simple to set up and would make them feel safe again. And this sounds like a very personal crusade, John, because making people feel safe is what Simply Safe has been doing ever since that moment 15 years ago. It's a passion to protect people, and it's not only what drives their every engineering detail in its products, but it also motivates every interaction with their customers. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize a system on their website. That's S I M P L I S A F E. Dot com slash mission log. Now, Simply Safe has highly trained security experts ready whenever you need them, whether that's during a fire, a burglary, a medical emergency, or even just when you're setting up the system. There's always someone there who has your back to keep you safe and make sure you feel safe. And as our listener, you can get 20% off on your Simply Safe security system. And get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash mission log to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash mission log. Oh, Norman, there is nothing like a Vulcan to really bring the slow burn, plotting a bit of humiliation over a period of 10 years, apparently, <laughs> 10 years to just, just, just twist that knife a little bit more. Like, like uh, Solak, you already won. You already won when you had that wrestling match with uh, mm-hmm. Ben Sisko. But th- now you just come back and you're like, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I mean, right. they, they have perseverance going for them, clearly. I, I, I want to know your take on this because I, I, I might have a slightly different take on, on the Vulcans here and what's driving them. So uh, you tell me. Okay, so up to this point, we have a, a fair understanding of, of Vulcan culture. We obviously have very iconic Vulcans up to this point in Star Trek history. We have Spock. Mm-hmm. We have Sarek. We have well, even Savic being half Romulan. Surak. You know, we, we've met Surak before. Yep. Yeah. yep. Uh-huh. So we have a, a very good, clear understanding of Vulcans, uh, this idea of Vulcan stoicism. Uh, it's something that's interwoven in the fabric of their culture. Mm-hmm. So when Solak appears and this whole history gets laid bare between him and Cisco, I have to ask. When did Vulcans become petty? <laughs> when did Vulcans become vindictive? And a 10-year vendetta on outlining this entire experience that he had, starting with the altercation with Cisco, is a very long time for, oh, I don't know, a grudge, which is, which is wholly a human construct. Yeah. And again, and a grudge that he already won. Like He already has the upper hand here. So right. if you could understand anybody simmering on that for 10 years, it would probably be Cisco. Like we, we could probably get where he's coming from, but he's trying to move on the best he can. I got to tell you, I went back and forth on this episode so often while watching it and thinking about Solok and his motivations. And I, I think the thing that turned me around, though, on him, like when they introduce him, 
I, I'm I'm kind of like, well, is he just is he the one Vulcan who's kind of a jerk here? Like he he somehow made it up the chain of command. He's the the captain of the Tacumbra, but he's not quite like Spock. He's not quite like Sarek. He's not quite like Surak or any of the other more sort of noble, admirable Vulcans that we've met. Maybe he's just the one who's got a really bad attitude. He has a problem repressing these emotions that are. Uh, driven by pettiness and revenge, even though it's not revenge for something that he lost, you know. But then we got to that last scene. And I kept thinking about every little bit of verbal jabs, barbs that McCoy and Spock ever shared. And Mm -hmm. McCoy recognizing those weaknesses in Spock's facade. And then I kept thinking about, well... For as non-emotional they are, the deep, seething emotions that are driving the, motive, uh, the, uh, the character arcs with Spock and Sarek. And these are two guys who will logic themselves into or out of any position they have already decided they want to take. You know? Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah. it, and it, which is a very human thing. The very human thing is you have the emotional reaction first. Humans just maybe wear it a little better on their sleeve. Then you logic yourself into the position of why you have that reaction. And I I feel like Solak is maybe the worst expression of it. (laughs) He's so insufferable. Wonderfully so. Written wonderfully insufferable in this. But I kept thinking, like, you know what? Does this track with what we've seen in the worst behavior out of Spock, or more specifically, Sarek. Because, because Sarek could just, like, lay you to waste with logic that you go, like, you know, it's it's logical, but you're also a jerk. But I don't see Sarek, say, like, you know, writing paper after paper. Like, say, when, <laughs> if Kirk never went, you know, to, to, to rescue Spock and to bring his Katra to Mount Salea, yeah, I don't see Sarek as, you know... Uh, laying this plan of embarrassing Kirk every single, you know, ex, you know, encounter that they have like later Can on. Right? That's a whole other Star Trek series. Like yeah, that's the novel exactly. I want to read. That's like a mirror universe <laughs> version of that story. Yeah. But I guess in the construct of this episode, I guess they have to paint somebody as the antagonist, not necessarily a villain, a villain, but the antagonist. So I guess I have, I understand what you're saying. And I think that I agree with a lot of that, but at the same time though, they already set Solak up as being this villain. And I think that in some way, I don't know why, but they also made him kind of like, as the kids call him today, a troll. He's been trolling Cisco for 10 years. I mean, that's so very anti-Vulcan because I think that the Vulcan after like, say after he just trounced him in that wrestling match, you know, at the uh, launching pad, he would just forget it. You know why? Because it's beneath him. It's not worthy of his time anymore. It's like, I made my point, move on. Yeah. So why, you know, why build a history of a, a vengeful Vulcan who just wants to embarrass and kind of like tarnish the career of a Starfleet captain? <laughs> why? I mean, that, it's not even like, they weren't even like competitors. They weren't probably even in the same like class. I mean, not tech, like class in terms of, you know, the, on uh, peer level, right? Right. He's, he's completely, you know, dissociated, you know, with dealing with humans. You know, he is... A captain of an all-Vulcan starship, I think, was not such a good idea after what happened with the Intrepid and the the Giant Amoeba. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Giant Amoeba, baby, right? Trip, yeah. Well, but see, I, I feel like it's one of those things where in Star Trek we we present the Vulcan ideal. You know, what what do they want? Uh, uh, their their uh, basically their their presentation to be, particularly to humans. Like they're very concerned about how they look to humans and maintaining that logical upper hand. But we know there's one thing. Every Vulcan has that one thing that they can't quite shake and. And with Spock, as we got to Star Trek, the motion picture, it's friendship. It's like, yeah, he can be Vulcan all day long, but what he really needs is that friendship. He needs to feel mm-hmm. that that familial bond with his crew. And uh, Sarek, has got, well, he's got a couple of things. Like He can be logical and Vulcan all day long, but he does have a, a deep love for Amanda and he's got some serious parenting issues when it comes to the the three three yes uh uh Sarah command uh, uh charges if not always their biological children uh that he definitely has some strained relationship with so maybe with Solak his one thing is that he is a vengeful jerk and uh everything else he's got under control but uh, if you were to go to Vulcan therapy, the therapist would be like, okay, you're, you're doing great. If you went to Kolinar with Solok, it, he's got mm-hmm. everything else down. And they're like, okay, we will pass you with Kolinar. We'll, we'll give you, you know, your Kolinar trophy. But you got to let this thing with Cisco go. And he just can't let it go. That, that's his yeah. one. It's his Achilles heel as a Vulcan. Can imagine that, you know, on the, you know, uh, in that final scene, you know, when Spock is right about to reach Kolinar, yeah. then all of a sudden the priestess holds up a baseball <laughs> and it just cracks, right? He's like, you're not ready for this. You know, yeah. Go back to Starfleet it's, and it, figure yourself out. It's the scene, you know, the priest holding up that necklace and instead of Spock's exactly. hand, Solok's hand, <laughs> slapping it down like, no, I got to do this one thing with this one guy from 10 years Another ago. voice is calling out to me. His yeah. name is Cisco. Cisco. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, I get it. I mean – I, the, the only – I could just sort of repeat myself, but I, the only way that I could justify it is to go like, okay, we, we've at least seen cracks in the Vulcan ideal, in the Vulcan mystique, because even as solid as Spock is, even as solid as Sarek has mostly been, and, and we, of course we saw Sarek's sort of demise in, in TNG and what was happening with him, we know that there's this undercurrent of deeply felt emotion under the the Vulcan face. You know, they, they are actually feeling these things. They're just trying desperately to repress them because those emotions are so strong. And it was always satisfying when you could see somebody like McCoy call out Spock. Like, oh, is, mm-hmm. is that a little bit of uh, jealousy I see? Is that a little bit of uh, irritation I see? Like, oh, no, no, no. And you know that every time Spock is denying it, he's actually got it. <laughs> you know? So there, there's something that, to me, bookended that nicely by having our DS9 cast do the same thing. Now, our DS9 cast, not exactly acting in the most mature way at that point, but... But the most human way. But the most human way. Although, and I do love, though, uh, Quark's line saying, uh, you know, all that intelligence, he can't even recognize a human. (laughs) You got the Ferengi, you got the Klingon, you got the Trill all sitting there joining in on that same taunt. Yeah. I mean, I know that they want to give him his comeuppance, and rightfully Mm -hmm. so, because, you know, they're they're taking their 
you know, their mediocrity, you know, in stride and, uh, you know, that this manufactured, you know, victory as Solak so places it. But I, I have to, I have to steer our discussion in, in, t- sure. in a different direction sure. because this is something that I know this is a, a very small thing, but it's just something that plagues me as a viewer. And you have, first of all, you have Jake being the pitcher because does anyone else get to try out to be the pitcher? <laughs> The, the star of the team? No, because why? Because Cisco wants to win. I get it. Yeah. He knows his son knows how to play baseball. He doesn't know how anybody else. However, he does point out two characters that give them a fighting chance against the Vulcans. Worf, because he's strong, yeah. and Bashir, because he's genetically engineered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bashir should be able to pick the Vulcans' batters apart without even trying. Yeah. It's yeah. baseball is mostly all about hand-eye coordination. Yeah, being able to like you know trick people into going you know especially batting, swinging at pitches that don't you know uh, enter the batter's box, whatever curveballs, sliders, etc. Yeah, Julian could do that at whim. Yeah, based on what he's been able to do. Why like wouldn't it have been awesome? It's like oh Jake, let me try that. <laughs> you know, he just like strikes out everybody. Yeah. I just don't see why that wasn't even considered. I, like having your genetically engineered, modified superhuman to do actually like the most accurate work. Do something superhuman. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do love uh, that scene of Quark practicing in the bar with them tossing stuff down from the upper leg. That was great. <laughs> that was, great. That, that was yeah. very clever. Very well done, you know. Um, I, I do have to say, you know, there, there are some interesting things to pick up in here that, um, you, you know, the Vulcans have this dedication there, uh, uh, certainly their, their sort of slavish dedication to logic here and uh, perseverance. But uh, Cisco names off these attributes very well, courage and faith and heart. And especially heart being the thing that the Vulcans don't have. So their motivation is a little strange. Like they, they're presumably the rest of the team is just doing this because this is what their captain is telling them to do. And they will do it technically to the top of their skill level. But I, I do like how the secret weapon and this is true really in every other story like this. But it, it's about passion. It's about just the desire, that motivation is what pushes you over the edge to actually be better, to overcome the limitations that you may already have. Yeah, I mean, I think like the one thing that's missing in this episode is hearing the opinions of like Solok's team. Like, why are they playing? Right. Why do they care? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, they wouldn't do it because they are beholding to the whims of their captain who has this rivalry with Cisco. So I think it would have been neat. Like, there's a scene at the end where... I guess it was uh, Nog, uh, you know, was standing next to another Vulcan player, and he says, "That's my dad." Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking to Rom uh, about Rom, and like the Vulcan said, "I don't really care about baseball. I just want to hear something like that." Like these guys, they were kind of like uh, conscripted; they were shanghaied into playing right. because Solak needed his team. But they don't really care about it. Why would they care about it? See, this right? is this is interesting though. The the more you say this now, I, I keep thinking about my uh, giving each Vulcan their one thing, their one emotional response that will drive them, even if they've managed to suppress everything else. Maybe some of them have got a little fear <laughs> running through them of their captain, or or just <laughs> this desire to please, this desire to uh, to make a good show in front of the captain. So they can be again just logical to a fault. But when it comes to this one thing, the unspoken truth among them is like, oh, well, we just we got to keep the captain happy. We're all kind of 
worried, but I guess we have to do this. Let me ask you something else here, uh, it, mm. because I, I wondered, and fortunately it's a scene that plays itself out the way it should, I think, and the, the episode resolves the way it should, I think. Um, but there was this moment here where I wondered about the fine line between recognizing one's actual limitations and pushing through to overcome them. Because I, I, I wondered, like, is Cisco's tough love approach as a coach okay at a certain point? Now, he has to change his attitude at a certain point, which is fine. Everybody has some growth. Everybody has an arc in this. But when he chastises Rom, it is uncomfortable. But then is it just okay for uh, Rom to think that he's not quite right here? I mean, I, I love him saying, I love this moment of him saying that he just wants to cheer on his friends from the grandstand. Like, that's all right. And yes, it's touching that his friends would say, no, 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 we're, we're, we're here with you. We're, we're all going to quit if you can't play. Well, maybe he just doesn't make the cut because he's not that good on the team. Now, of course, again, the episode has to resolve itself a different way. But is it all right for the others to recognize at some point, like, yeah, well, he, he's just not as good. So we'll just continue on. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why Rom had to get cut anyway, because they could have just put him as a sub. Sure. He could have sat the bench, you know. He could have, like, had that longing, show that longing from the bench. Yes. Because we've seen time and time again in other movies where players who aren't as good, they're not cut because they need to fill out the bench, but they're also not played because they're not good. Right. And you see them time and time again. We're like, oh my gosh, if I only had that one chance. Well, Cisco could have done that from the dugout. you know. He, or it could have been O'Brien's call, which would have been amazing because Cisco was thrown out of the game and O'Brien had to make that decision, mm -hmm. right? Because they already set up that O'Brien was uncomfortable being the, the assistant coach after he got pulled out for his injury. So that would have been O'Brien's call, and that would have been awesome. Yeah, right? there you go. I know what you're all thinking. Thank goodness this episode was about baseball and not in Bojitsu. Well, John, it's bottom of the ninth, and we are here at the final segment. Will we strike out or will we home run grand slam this thing? So, actually, let me dial that back. Okay. We are talking about uh, the end of Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. As we do here on Mission Log, we take a look at the episode and we take a look at does this episode withstand the test of time and what are the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. So let's start with you, John. Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite. Does this episode hold up? I, this happens from time to time on Mission Log. Okay, where I, I'll watch an episode, I'll have a pretty strong reaction to it. Then my reaction will change a little bit the more I watch it, because I, I think my anticipation of certain scenes or the details I'm paying attention to will change a little bit. But then I, I, I kind of narrow down my thoughts. Then we get into a conversation. And the conversation can actually change my perception of the episode as I'm going along. And that might have happened here just literally within the last hour that we've been talking. Okay, so I, my initial reaction is this, that, that I, I don't love it. And to me, I, I know that this is an episode that many people love, 
and for very good reasons. It, it is a break from the drudgery of DS9's war story. And there are many great character moments. And it's uplifting. And it breaks our characters out of their usual routine. I get that. And you had the classic sports as a metaphor for life story. And, and honestly, that is where I tend to part ways with, well, this episode or, or shows or movies like it. It's fun. There's no question. It's an homage to an homage to an homage. So it kind of feels like a lot of those beats are things that I can see coming. And if you love this episode, I want you to love this episode because I get your reasons why. I'm just not necessarily in lockstep with you there. So to me, this is a perfectly fine diversion. It's just not an episode that really speaks to me. Except, except for the very end. Uh, taking that Vulcan down, taking Solak down a notch for the deeply smug, emotional behavior that he displays. I thought that was perfect. Uh, The moment with the signed baseball, I will admit that that hit me right in the feels. And Renee is just gold in this episode. He is so good. So I I was bringing some kind of negative reaction. It's an episode that didn't connect with me, or I didn't connect with it. Um, But I know that there was anticipation here because a lot of people love it. The more I talk to you today, the more I enjoyed it, the more I had fun with it. So I think I'm going to have that disconnect where it isn't one that I'll just always go back to, but I enjoyed it because I enjoyed our conversation so much. So... I, I think now I will elevate this uh, the, this story a little bit more and say it holds up. It holds up really well. It's just not going to be one necessarily that that feels like it's very personal for me. Mm-hmm. So so that's it. Fun, enjoyable stuff. Great character moments, and enjoyed your enthusiasm, which made my enthusiasm that much greater uh, for this episode. So um, well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's um, something to be said about being able to have these these uh, personal discussions mm-hmm. out loud about an episode because in in varying ways, whether it's here through the podcast or whether it's in person, say, at a convention or just gathering around a group of friends watching an episode, there is a certain infectiousness about being able to share enthusiasm. And I think that that's mm-hmm. what this episode does. I really enjoyed this episode. And it is, it's tough to build that personal enthusiasm kind of like in a vacuum when you're watching it on your own. But as you start to espouse things out loud, you take kind of like the context of this episode, even though it's in this larger narrative of this Dominion War, you kind of take like the bottled aspect of this episode and try and find like the, the gems that are hidden in this episode. And I think that that's where a lot of the fun of this episode really uh, can be found because it's... It's a good standalone episode. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that tropish uh, bad news bears type of narrative mm-hmm. or like major league. You know, you have the, the ne'er-do-wells that you know will never win. You know that they were, n- but they won't win the obvious victory. You know, right. the, they won't score the points on the board, which to the Vulcans, to the logicians, that's the most important thing. What they win is something completely different. And we'll obviously talk about that in morals, meanings and messages. But I think this episode is just endearing. It's endearing yeah. because it allows us to reconnect with our characters at a very personal level, at a very singular level, having fun with them after a raft of episodes that have been very heavy and dramatic and somber, right? Just 
Quark getting hit in the back of his head <laughs> by Rom swinging a baseball back, not I looking. Know. I mean, that can happen. I've seen that happen in sports. Yeah. You know, or having, say, Dax and Julian fight for a fly ball and having the ball drop in the middle of them and them beating each up, mm-hmm. each other up about it. That is tropish to a fault. Yeah. But so what? Because we haven't seen our characters do it. And it's when we see our characters do it, that that just connects them even more deeply with us. So it's for these reasons that these these misfits don't they don't win, but they learn and they grow and they grow together. And it just is a fun episode full of positivity. And I can't help but equate this to the same reaction that I'm having with Ted Lasso. Uh, see? Okay, yeah. And, and that's one of those where, again, it was a hard sell for me to say, here's this show about a guy who's coaching a football team, well, soccer, but, you know, football team. I, 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 that's not made for me. That, that's just mm-hmm. not a thing that I connect with. But I connect with the characters. I connect with the motivations. I connect with the positivity. I connect with so much else that's there. And that, after talking to you about this episode of DS9, I, I knew that all of those elements were there, but our conversation steered me to focus on those, even though I still have a disconnect with the material itself. So, uh, but, that's, but you alluded to the morals, meanings, messages a moment ago, and, and I think that you and I are feeling kind of the same thing here about what it's trying to say. So why, why don't you hit us with what you have? So John and I are probably going to land on very similar points. And uh, again, full disclosure, uh, neither of us really look at our notes when we're creating our notes. So he may talk on, on similar topics. But this episode isn't about winning. This is the moral that I come away with. It's not about winning. It's about teamwork. And it's about rediscovering that teamwork, something that I think that Cisco lost and rediscovered again which makes the morals very poignant and powerful. As that old cliche goes, teamwork makes the dream work, right? That's, that's a, a, it's very apropos to this episode. I, 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 need to, like I, I need to strike that out of my notes now. No, 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 talk about it again. Talk about that's it again. It's hilarious that we wrote the same yeah. thing. Go ahead. Go but ahead. that means that that particular notion, kind of like it's the cream that rose to the top of this episode, because it's about these, these individuals. Like, they're great at their jobs. Right. As Starfleet officers or tangentially so, they know how to come together to get that particular job done. Then you throw them into what they call kind of like this management program for interacting between your your coworkers. How do they all come together? How do they put aside their differences? How do they make it work? And at the leadership level, how does Cisco make this work? And he doesn't at the beginning, because all he is focusing on is the big W, the win, right? He puts his son, he literally chooses nepotism over what a good manager should do and try out the best person, right? He knows that Jake is good. Everyone else isn't. That's what he knows. That's what he thinks. Puts Jake in the position of pitcher, like the star, quote unquote, of the team, right? Might as well put him in quarterback if they were playing a football game. But throughout the course of this entirety of this episode, he learns for himself that this game is just a game. It's a game that brings him happiness, that brings him joy. If he is not carrying that message to his team, then his team doesn't have joy in playing it, doesn't understand why they're playing it, and loses what is most important when it comes to team building, and that's morale. 
And morale is something that is so very important, not just in bringing this Niners team together, but what happens to them outside of the hollow suite when they are faced in the most dire circumstances, because they have to rely on each other. They have to continue that esprit de corps in order for them to function further on in the Dominion War, because we're still in this war. So having the back of your teammates through thick and thin, accepting their weaknesses as well as their strengths, because in the end, that is what this episode is talking about, is talking about team-based healing and support. It's a very powerful concept, and I think that's one that can easily be overlooked because this episode is so loosely based on just the competitive aspect of it rather than the team-building aspect of it. But what did you think of it? Yeah, I, it's funny. As you're saying that, I'm thinking that there is something that it is so, like, obvious and cheesy about this idea of uh, well teamwork makes the dream work but but there's something critical in there that when people are working together for a long time you do have to reset and refresh and get to know each other on a personal uh emotional and fun level that then re-motivates you to actually go do the job again so it's nice to see our group get a break like that and, and yeah it, it's that whole thing about teamwork, you know, everybody has their place. Everybody has their way to contribute. And even those players so obviously here who you feel like uh, might not be as strong as others, they still have value there. And that is a very Star Trek thing to see, that everybody has a place and everybody has an opportunity. And and you just you kind of have to love everyone coming together for this game and everybody playing to their strengths and then finding strengths that they didn't know necessarily that they had. I think another takeaway here is that Vulcans are sometimes utterly insufferable, but I, I've been, you know, saying that since TOS sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> there is something great here about celebrating the victories, even when you lose, because the definition of that victory might be something else. It might be personal. It might be some other goal that you've set that is worth celebrating. Uh, so I love to see the joy on all of their faces at the end by banding together after this challenge. Uh, so in that, it's not necessarily about you win, how you win or lose. It is about how you play the game. So that that is all well well said and well done. And, and look, I, I feel like I can only leave us uh, with, with the words of somebody else very famous when he said about baseball. You know, we're talking about this different in the, in the team and in the individual. And somebody once said, a man stands alone at a plate. And this is the time for what? For individual achievement. There he stands alone. But in the field, what? Part of a team. Teamwork, teamwork, teamwork. Looks, throws, catches, hustles. Part of one big team. Bats himself the live long day. Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and so on. If his team don't field, what is he? You follow me? No one. Sunny Day stands full of fans. What does he have to say? I'm going out there for myself. But I get nowhere unless the team wins. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly... You can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. 
Apologies to Robert De Niro. On the next Mission Log, Chrysalis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. After that bit of untouchable wisdom, all I can say is, here endeth the lesson. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 